Uh, so the first reading is from uh, Leviticus uh, 19, starting at verse 13. In the book of Moses, God says, Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the second reading uh, comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, 
faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. In this sermon, I want to show you how important the future is in living a life of Christian virtue in the here and now. How important the future is in living a life of Christian virtue in the here and now. Or in the words of our sermon series, there is transforming hope. The Christian faith holds that the best is yet to come. Sure, it looks back to the events of the gospel, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it also looks forward, forward to the completion and climax of what was begun in that death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It holds that this present life is the first phase in a much longer existence. Some things will continue between the present and the ultimate future, and some things will be different. Some things will continue, some things will be different. And that's the key to understanding the passage from the New Testament I wish to open up to you this, this evening. It's one of the best-known passages in the Bible, and yet in so many ways is one of the least understood. It features at weddings, and as I found out last Sunday, when I found a leftover service sheet in this very building, at funerals as well. At the 15th anniversary of federal parliament's apology to the stolen generations this week, I realized that the language of this passage of scripture has even made its way into Prime Minister Rudd's speech at that time. In this sentence, and I quote, for us, symbolism is important, but unless the great symbolism of reconciliation is accompanied by an even greater substance, it's little more than a clanging gong. Yes, the passage is, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, page 931 of your church Bibles, which you heard read just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians is one of those letters in Paul in which the agenda is set by the issues and problems within the church he's writing to. And there were plenty of issues and problems in the church in Corinth. Often a church community will take some of the character of the city in which it is situated. The Corinthian church was certainly like that. Corinth was a large, prosperous trade center in the south of Greece. It was known as a bustling emporium. It was no place for the timid or the gullible. In Corinth, the, the tough survived. Andy Thistleton uh, wrote a summary of the, of the culture, very instructive, I quote, an obsessive concern to win reputation and status, self-promotion to gain applause and ambition to succeed, often by manipulating networks of power, and above all, an emphasis upon autonomy and rights, end of quote. Sounds remarkably modern. Sounds like Sydney a bit. Now that culture had seeped into the church. It was a church that had experienced a very powerful work of the Holy Spirit, so much so the poor could describe them as, quote, enriched in every way, with all kinds of gift and knowledge, and not lacking in any spiritual gift. But the culture of competition and status-seeking meant the Corinthians were divided into factions, and in particular relevant for our section is, 
exalting the more exotic gifts of the spirit, like speaking in tongues, as signs of spiritual superiority. The language of angels, the one thing you must have to truly belong to be mature in Christ. And Paul responded to that particular problem with three prongs. One in chapter 12, where he says that the church is like a human body, all different parts. You need them all, not just one. And then in the third prong will be in chapter 14, where he makes the somewhat obvious point, one might think, that to be constructive in an assembly meeting of the church, you ought to speak a language people understand. But in our section, chapter 13, he turns the Corinthians' discussion completely on its head, as we'll see. There are three sections and three headings. One, G minus L equals naught. Two, it's not rocket science. And three, the future-proof virtue. G, my first heading, G minus L equals naught. This is the formula which Paul uses when speaking about the gifts of the Spirit in his opening words of 1 Corinthians 13. G is a variable, any gift you like. L is love, and naught is a constant. G minus L equals naught. 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The tongues of men or of angels, I think is likely a phrase of the, of the Corinthians themselves. They, they thought they were speaking in this prayer, they were praying the tongues of angels, the one thing you need to be, a true, to be truly there in Christ. But no, G minus L, not. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, a money resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Then Paul ramps it up a bit in chapter 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. If I have the gifts of prophecy, he writes, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. He really piles it on. Now we have prophetic power, that is, the power to speak revelations from God. We have the power to be able to understand not just some, but all mysteries. Add to that, not just some, but all knowledge of all divine things. And that's not all. There's more. Add to that such powerful faith that you're literally able to move mountains by your prayers. Now weigh all that on the scales. The prophecy, the knowledge, the prophetic powers. the ability to pray and make things happen with your powerful faith, all of that. The one thing you don't have is love. What do you get? If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. G minus L equals naught. And finally, Paul shifts to extraordinary acts of generosity and self-sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body for hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Whatever G is, take away love. It is nothing, nothing, nothing. Now, this is really... I think we may suffer from being too familiar with it. But think about it. That's a very stark, even shocking teaching. 
It's a shocking teaching because it's hard to believe. I mean, we might say we do, that's easy to do, but I mean, really believe it. That without love, it's all nothing. Now, I've been in church circles long enough and know myself long enough to see this truth often forgotten in the rush for other things, be it gifts of the spirit or theological clarity or correctness or power. It's, it's so let us begin by actually believing the Apostle Paul and believing the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking through him. My second heading is, it's not rocket science. Given that G minus L equals naught, what about what is this L without which you are nothing? And it would be a mistake to try and idealise it, to, to make it so grand and impossible to attain that it doesn't really get a purchase on us in practical terms. So we go away with nothing really other than a vague sense of guilt, which some Christians seem to like for some reason. But look at how Paul spells it out. What is this thing without which you are nothing? It's strangely prosaic and down to earth. Let me read verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now I'm not saying that this is always easy, when I'm saying it's not rocket science, I'm not saying it's easy, in fact, far from it. Left to ourselves, we'd find it very easy to become small-minded, unkind, jealous, fussy, puffed up, shameless, and the like. And that's not what Paul's talking about. But I can say it's not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. This love, without which it is nothing, is a virtue which has to be learned and practiced. A character trait that needs to become habitual. That's what it is. Let me take, take you briefly through every, every feature that Paul gives. Verse 4, love is patient. Now, now, Paul's words here about love have a, in the Greek, have a verbal structure rather than the adjectival structure we find in the NIV and most English translations. I realise, of course, that those of you who benefited from a modern education have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I should say is, let's, Paul's talking about doing words. So we probably could translate this, love waits patiently. Love patience. It's a verb, not just, not just an adjective. In fact, the word patiently here is literally in the Greek language, long-spirited or long-tempered. It's interesting, in English we have the phrase short-tempered. You know what that means, don't you? But we don't have the phrase long-tempered. Well, we do now. Love waits long-temperedly. Next, love is kind. Again, turn it into the verb. Love shows kindness to others. Next, love does not envy. That is, it doesn't burn with envy or jealousy with others. It does not boast. Love is not bragging. Love does not brag. It is not proud. The verb here is to inflate and puff up. Love does not have inflated ideas about its own importance. Verse 5, it does not dishonour others. Uh, here the NIV's played a nice translation trick on us. The verb here actually is to act inappropriately or unbecomingly. Love does not behave with ill-mannered 
impropriety. And therefore you can say it doesn't dishonour others. It's, it's, it's not, the old, the old King James had, I think is the word rude. Next, it's not self-seeking. Love is not preoccupied, preoccupied with the interest of the self, which of course makes it in today's postmodern world remarkably countercultural, which is very proud and focused on the issues of the self. Next, not easily angered. The verb here comes from the word to be make sharp or pointed. We might try and say, love does not act prickly. Act prickly. And it lastly, or not second lastly, it keeps no record of wrongs. That is, it doesn't have a list of grievances. There's no airing of grievances with love. And then finally, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Delighting in evil or wrongdoing, I think, might mean something a bit like Schadenfreude. You might not know the German word, but you know the practice. It's malicious joy or gloating over others' failures. Mm. Or it might mean delighting in evil. It might be some sort of notion of being censorious, you know, taking pleasure in telling others off. Love does not do this. <laughs> what it does instead is it rejoices. It rejoices and celebrates truth. That, I think that means it has no hidden agenda. It acts with integrity. And Paul concludes, love, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That is, it never tires of support, it never loses faith, it never exhausts hope, it never gives up. Now, that, that, that's a quite a comprehensive list, I, I agree. Patient, kind, not envy, not boast, not proud, not acting improperly with others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, not holding grievances, not delight in evil but rejoicing in truth, always protecting, trusting, hoping and persevering. It's, it is practical though. It's a list. It is not a grand um, ideal picture. It's a list of human behaviours that are within your reach and within my reach. It is not rocket science. It needs our study our application and our practice but it's not rocket science and it's very important this is what our last section tells us in the last section of this chapter Paul delivers a killer blow to the lopsided outlook of the Corinthian super spiritual types see the, the, the Corinthians experience of Christ of the spirit and various gifts led them to, to we, we believe somehow think that they had arrived in heaven or, or they had the powers of the age to come. They were tasting the powers of, 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 the, of the future, which they were tasting the very powers of the, the resurrected life. Speaking in the language of angels, perhaps. Complete in Christ. Now, Paul says, yes, there is something now which does last, you, you, yes, which is a mark of heavenly completeness in Christ, but it's not what they think. Quite the opposite. And so we come to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Possibly the most important section of the chapter, yet when read at weddings and funerals, I imagine it's the most completely misunder incomprehensible, I suspect. And this is the section I had in mind when I began by saying, I want to show you how the future is important for living a life of Christian virtue in the here and now. I said, you remember, that, that the, the Christian faith holds this, the best is yet to come, doesn't just look back at the big events of the gospel, but looks forward also to the completion and climax of, of the gospel. And some things will be the same 
at that great day as today, and some would be very different. And the key is to know the difference between those two. And that's where the Corinthian super spiritual types got it completely back to front. They thought that their use of their super gifts was the thing about the future. Paul says you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, he begins by announcing that what they think are marks of eternity are in fact only temporary. Chapter 13, verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Why is this? Why will prophecies going to cease? Why are tongues going to be stilled? Why is knowledge going to pass away? Well, the reason is that despite what you might think, they're all in some way partial. They're incomplete and fragmentary. And they'll be obsolete when what is complete and not partial arrives. It's a bit like having a small little torch in the dark. It looks great, but go out today like yesterday with the sun blazing down. Nothing. And that's what Paul is saying in verses 9 and 10. He says, they'll pass away. And he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When completeness, the word he uses, the word for having arrived or even perfected, when, when that great thing comes, that is completeness, then the in part things disappear. Now, the experience of Christ, then the fulfillment when Christ arrived, when Christ is revealed. That's when, as Paul will write in two chapters' time, God the Son will hand the kingdom to God the Father, having destroyed all dominion, authority and power. The last enemy, by the way, to beat at the throne will be death. And that's when the Son himself will be subject to God the Father, so that, as Paul puts it most wonderfully, that God may be all in all. That's, that's the completeness he's writing about. And that coming of that glory, of that completeness, supersedes all incomplete, fragmentary, tongues, prophecy, knowledge. So, Corinthians, you've got it completely wrong. He then makes two further contrasts to drive the work point home. It's a bit like growing up, becoming an adult. I know that they say today that doesn't happen until you're about 24, maybe 30. I, I don't know. It happens by the time you're 70, I'll tell you that, buddy. <laughs> Paul says this, verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, that is, an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. See, Paul's, Paul's thinking, today in the Corinthian experience, that's childhood. They thought it was maturity. It was, no, it's childhood, says Paul. And it may even be a not-so-subtle dig at speaking in tongues, which may sound like a child's babble, perhaps. I don't know whether that's in there. They took that of proof that they were adults. No, says Paul, when you become adults, you'll put away the childish things. Now, Paul's not being critical of childish things. He's not being critical of these gifts. In fact, in the next chapter, he says he himself indulges in them. He uses them. He's just saying, that's not where the action is. That's merely that's temporary. You Corinthians have got it all upside down. Second illustration about seeing. First part of verse 12. Quote, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. The same contrast, now and then. Now, 
to get this, we may need to know that glass mirrors, silverback glass mirrors, were unknown in Paul's day. Although Corinth did make some pretty good polished bronze ones. Polished bronze. So they still had mirrors, but they weren't the kind of mirror we now take for granted. And Paul's point contrasts between the present of seeing indirectly and not too clearly with seeing, does he mean seeing God face to face? Think about that contrast. Seeing the Lord face to face. And the third way is about knowing, third contrast, about knowing. The second part of chapter 13, verse 2. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Fully known by God. How well does God know you fully? One day you will know as fully as you are known, says Paul. But that's for then, not now. Now it's only in part. I find this very striking and quite exciting in its own way. I mean, everything we know now, and Paul has in mind in particular that the things of God, is partial. Now that's obviously true, and I'm sure you don't need to be told that about yourself. But it's, it's true not just of you or of me, it's true of the great work, the greatest works of theology which the Christian movement has given us. Towering works of, of, of intellectual and spiritual insight. Partial. It's true of the great church creeds. Partial. If I may say with the greatest caution and respect, it's true even of the Holy Scriptures themselves. The Holy Scriptures themselves as wonderful as they are, still knowing only in part. But then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. So don't get too excited about your knowledge, says Paul. Well, having dismissed tongues, prophecy and knowledge, is there anything left? Paul ends with a zinger. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now these three remain... Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These three, and it is surprising that there are three and not just one as we expected, are now, they are the language of the future. They are the language of the time when the completeness comes. They are, they are the language of the adulthood when we put away childish things. They're not incomplete that will cease when this will become. They're not the childish ways to give way to adulthood. The greatest of these is love. That's his point. The future that gives you determines what matters now. That's the point. Now, like you, I would wish Paul had written more, especially about his unexpected inclusion of faith and hope in the three you can speculate, I'm not going to, why he did that and what it might mean. Tonight, we'll just simply take his word for it. Because the key thing I want to say is this. This is the key thing. Much in our lives and the life of our church will be drastically changed when the Lord comes in glory, to put it mildly. To put it mildly. But 
learning to love, to have respect and concern for others and not just ourselves, which is grounded, of course, in the nature of God as revealed in Christ. Learning that, cultivating that virtue, will never become redundant, obsolete, or irrelevant. That practical thing will never become obsolete, redundant, or irrelevant. Let me say it again. Learning to love, to have respect and concern for others above the self, will never become redundant, obsolete, or irrelevant. And therefore, the future provides the model for the present working out of present-day priorities for the Corinthians and for us. Because this is the future-proof virtue. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this writing and even the problems which since provoked it because it is so helpful to us. Therefore, we grant you, grant Father, grant us that understanding of what is important and what is not important, of the centrality of love, of the practicality of love, and of the necessity of love, that we may not be nothing, but please you in all we do, for Jesus' sake. Amen.